thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. You can take your Bibles and go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be, and with their parents' permission, the children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time as well. And again, we're asking the question this morning, is Thanksgiving a holiday or a lifestyle for you? Is Thanksgiving a holiday or is it a lifestyle for you? We can so easily choose a selfish mindset that it turns negative at the drop of a hat. Right? It's so easy to be negative. It's so easy to be, to be pessimistic. It's so easy to complain, to grumble, to argue against the Word of God, seeking to justify our own path, our own way. Grumbling is easy. It's also contagious. Right? It's contagious in our own soul. Once you start going down that path of complaint and grumbling, you can find lots of reasons for complaint, can't you? You just start finding them everywhere, and it's just like a, a constant stream of grumbling, a constant stream of complaint. Uh, moreover, it's contagious with those around you. It's easy to pile together of people who are just complaining, right, and feeding off one another. But Paul has something to say to that. In Philippians chapter 2, and verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling. Like, do everything. Without that, without that mindset, lifestyle of grumbling or complaining. Now, again, this is helpful for us. It's good for us to be reminded that we really shouldn't be noted for our complaint and noted for our grumbling uh, attitudes and spirits. We really should be known for our thanksgiving. But Paul has something more specific in mind. It's not just a general admonition to not grumble. Rather, he has something specific in mind, specifically the word and ways of God. You can see that as you look in the context of this passage, specifically verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2, in light of the whole of the book of Philippians. But glance down for a moment at verses 12 and 13. Here Paul reminds us of our salvation and what God is doing in us as a result of that salvation. We have been saved by God's grace through faith alone. And so he says, work that out. Paul says, work out that salvation. Hey guys, and understand that as you do it, God is the one ultimately working in you. Verse 13, God is working in you. He's pulling you towards himself. He's pulling you towards Christ's likeness. So Paul is saying, work with that. Like, don't resist what God is doing. Don't resist what God's doing in your life. It's in that context that Paul says, and don't complain. Don't resist what God is doing in your life through his word and through his ways as he pulls you towards himself. He's good. Like he saved you. He's good. Don't resist that. Don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't argue with him. Rather, yield to him. Now, again, we ask the question, like, why would Paul have to say that? Because we understand, and we've already celebrated this morning, that the grace that has saved us is amazing. Amen? 
God's grace is amazing. The fact that he would come after us as he has, the fact that he would offer us forgiveness, free, the fact that Jesus would die for us, amazing, right? Why would we have to be charged not to complain against that? We understand also that the word of God is good, like our eyes have been opened. Uh, This word is not negative, right? It's not restrictive as we perhaps once thought of, of it as. Rather, the word of God is loving instruction from a good father. Moreover, we understand that even the circumstances of our life are under the watchful eye of our father. He's watching over his children. All of this, that's game-changing stuff, is it not? Game-changing stuff for our hearts, for our minds, for our perspectives, the way we see the world, the way we see Christianity. So, in light of all that, why would Paul have to say, don't grumble, don't complain, and don't argue about that? Well, because it can get tough, can't it? When the word of God confronts us where we are. Like when the word of God confronts a particular sin pattern in my life. Or a particular weakness in my life. A particular struggle that I have. And the word of God comes to bear. Or when the word of God seems to prohibit something that I really want to do. That's when it gets hard. Right? That's when we're tempted to argue. That's when we're tempted to go like, nah, is it really that big of a deal? It's just a little lust. It's just a little white lie. It's just a little taking of what's not mine. Right? We want to justify just a little gossip. Not a lot. Just a little gossip. We want to start justifying, right? We want to start disputing with the word of God. Arguing with the word of God complaining about the word of God. That's when it gets tough. And so Paul is saying, guys, trust your good father. Trust in the goodness of the word of God. It will never lead you to bad places. You can always trust in the word of God. Thus Paul is saying, okay, I want you to say, brothers and sisters, I want you to say, God, I'm going to believe you instead of myself. My flesh wants to go a certain way that I know is against what God would have for me. Paul says, I want you to say, I'm going to believe you, God, instead of myself. I'm going to believe you know best for me. And even though a large part of me wants to ignore this or dispute it, I'm going to trust you. That's what he wants for us. For we have two options, my friends. In moments like this, we have two options. We can either surrender, take our hands off and surrender, Or we can complain, we can gripe, we can argue. Moreover, when circumstances, circumstances of life hit us seemingly out of nowhere and are either irritating or devastating for us, these are times in which we will want to complain, right? Certainly God's not in control of that. How could God, if he's good, how could he allow that? And we want to dive into complaint. We want to dive into perhaps despair. What does Paul say? What Paul says for us is don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't argue. Surrender. Trust 
brothers and sisters, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you can make no sense of a circumstance whatsoever, trust, take your hands off, trust me, I'm good, I'm trustworthy. We're so tempted in circumstances like these that are either irritating or frustrating or even devastating to say, as one author put it last week, God, you blew it. You had a chance to meet my expectations, but you couldn't handle it. And perhaps we wouldn't verbalize that out loud in church, but that's kind of how we feel. Or perhaps that's really what we're saying when we grumble, when we complain. God, you don't know what you're doing. You blew it. You had a chance, and you blew it. Rather, Paul wants us to say, in Philippians 2.14, God, I know that whatever I face has already passed through the loving hands of a God who can work it together for good. Just think about it, my friends. It's already passed through the loving hands of a God who can work it together for good. This, my friends, is how Paul would have us live. I want you to see today that this is the pathway to true joy, my friends, true joy, and this is the pathway to great impact on those around you. We've seen this in the life of the Apostle Paul. So I said last week that there are two examples in the context of this passage that really kind of feed into it, that are living and breathing examples of what Paul is preaching. And the first is himself. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, again, glance down at it with me. We won't teach it again, but I just want to remind you of what's going on here because it's so remarkable. It's been such a challenge to me, such an encouragement also to me. But just think about the reality of Paul's scenario, that he is writing this from prison. He says as much in this passage. He's writing this from prison, and also while in prison, he's being slandered. Just think about those circumstances. Think about how you might have responded if your attempt to do good and to follow God landed you in jail and then everybody out there is slandering you. Think about how you might have felt, what your perspective might have been. And now consider what Paul's was. What was Paul's perspective? As we talked last time, he was not grumbling at all. Rather, he was giddy. You think I'm overplaying it, don't you? <laughs> he was giddy. I mean, like, if you look at this passage and you really dive into it, what you come away with is this man is remarkably joyful. Remarkably joyful. I mean, just check out verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, just hear it. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is good, like God's word is going forward. What's happening right now is phenomenal. This is what he's saying. Guys, listen, it's good. It's wonderful. I mean, it's remarkable. And I, I will tell you again, as I said last week, I don't want to stand up here pretending that that would have been my exact response. I don't know, but I, I'm tempted to think that that would not have been my response. It's much easier to talk about this than to actually apply and do. But man, this is a great example for us. That Paul lives out 
what he preaches in verse 14 of chapter 2. He is rejoicing. You see that verse 18. Uh, check it out again because I think there's something super important with regard to not only his experience of joy, following the word and ways of God, just trusting in the sovereignty of God, but also his choice. This is a choice that he makes. What does he say? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, regardless of the fact that I'm in prison and I'm being slandered, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says, I am happy. But note with me the very next phrase. It might look like in your Bibles attached to verse 19 or to a different paragraph. Really just kind of continues. The thought continues. Yes, he says, and I will rejoice. What is that? It is a choice. My friends, it's a volitional statement of choice. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rejoice in my God, his goodness, and his ways that sometimes don't make sense to us. But I know that he is good. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. We also see it in the life of Christ. So skip over with me to chapter 2 and verse 5. Okay, and see this in the life of Jesus. So helpful for us to contemplate. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. This is what he would have us live like. How he would model our lives after. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, he's going to talk about Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now just pause right here for a moment. Let's just work out a little bit of theology. That's important. So the Apostle Paul here is ultimately affirming what we've been seeing in 1 John. He's affirming the hypostatic union of Christ, affirming first his deity, but then also his humanity, this reality that he is simultaneously both God and man at the same time. That was a redundant phrase, sorry. He was simultaneously God and man, all right? And, uh, and so you see this played out in this passage. Consider it with me as he says, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, as John says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus was God, with God, and he did not need to become God. So this is what he means when he says, it did not need to be grasped. He did not need to attain divinity. Jesus was already God. But, verse 7, though he was God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, he emptied himself of certain divine prerogatives of his divinity. Not that he ceased being God. He was still God. But laid aside certain prerogatives to become man. So he's affirming that Jesus was God and man, the incarnation of Christ. Know with me what he does, what, what Jesus does. This is the example. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, fully man. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
What is Paul saying? Paul is saying is, what Paul is saying is that when Jesus laid aside those divine prerogatives to become a man, in becoming a man, he humbled himself before the word and ways of his father. The only human that's ever lived that really could be independent or model independence actually modeled remarkable dependence and reliance upon the word and ways of his father. This is what Jesus modeled. What remarkable humility, what remarkable surrender. So even as we talk about this choice that you and I arrive at, when the word of God confronts our sin, when circumstances don't seem to be right, and we have this choice to make either surrender or grumbling, complaint and arguing, Consider Jesus. This model for us that in his life he humbled himself to be submissive to and surrendered to the will of his father. He was obedient even to the point of death. So Jesus is the model of what it looks like to radically submit your life to the word and ways of his father, to the word and ways of God. I actually just want you to see it for a moment in action with regard to temptation. Uh, so turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 real quick. Go there because I think this will be helpful for us in our mindset. Matthew chapter 4. Chapter 4. <laughs> We'll begin reading in verse 1. Note me the very first phrase. This is, this is really important. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What is Jesus modeling even here? He's modeling submission to and surrender to the will of his Father, who by the Spirit is leading the Son. He's leading the Son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so Jesus is in this position of submission and surrender to whatever the Father wills. Now, in the wilderness, verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. In his humanness, my friends, in his humanity, he was starving to death. 40 days, 40 nights without food. Undoubtedly, he was shaky. He was famished. He was weak. He was hot in the wilderness, no food. It's here that he faces temptation, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Pause right here. What we're going to see is three separate times Satan twists the word of God. He twists the word of God to use it against God. This is what Satan does. He twists, he takes something that appears to be true, maybe in a certain way, and twists it to use it against God. But what does Jesus do? Oh, this is huge. My friends, please continue to track. This is huge. Now with me what Jesus does. Again, the one man who could be completely independent, what does he model? 
surrender to the word and ways of his father. Here's how Jesus responds in the face of temptation. He answered, it is written. What does he knee jerk to? What does he yield to? He yields to the word of God. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, in effect, is saying, the Father is leading me. The Father is leading me. He will provide for me. I don't need to take it outside of his will. He will provide it for me. It's my ultimate food and sustenance to live by the word, every word that comes from the mouth of God, from the mouth of the Father. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. You're Satan twisting the word of God. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Doesn't the Bible say that God will protect you? That's what Satan is saying. What does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, verse 7, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan puts himself in this authoritative position to ask Jesus to surrender to him, to submit to him. And what does Jesus do? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him, to Jesus. The devil left. What is this? It's resounding victory, my friends, resounding victory. But what was the means the means whereby Jesus gained the victory over Satan in this moment that demonstrates his humanity as he was weak and facing temptation in all points, just like us, facing temptation. What did Jesus do? He modeled for us submission to the word and ways of his Father. I know that what God has said is good. Don't you think that in his body he wanted, as a starving man, he wanted to make some stones into bread? Don't you think he wanted to do that? Certainly we know he could have. He turned water into wine. He calmed storms with a word. It would have been easy peasy for him to turn stones into bread. But you know what Jesus was unwilling to do? He was unwilling to step outside the will of his Father. Jesus yielded himself, surrendered himself to the word and ways of his God. And what a blessing it is for us to be able to look at that as our example, as our model. And Hebrews tells us that he did all of this, including being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, he did all this with joy. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down. Jesus ultimately wins, my friend. Amen? He is obedient to the point of death. But know with me what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen is right. It's awesome. But please don't miss how Paul uses his example of life. The path from point A to point B, his incarnation to his death, burial, and resurrection is all marked with submission to the will and word of his Father. Jesus is quoted so many times in the gospel as saying something to the effect of, I only do that which the Father tells me to do. I came to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was radically surrendered. So, ahead of this command, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, for us not to grumble, complain, gripe, or argue with the word and ways of God, he gives to us two examples, beautiful examples. Paul in prison, being slandered, and Jesus in his earthly life, being tempted, and coming to the foot of the cross and saying, in Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is what Paul is saying. This is the way. Brothers and sisters, this is the way. And I would tell you that both of these men, you can see even in this context, both of these men, first of all, the man Paul, and then the God-man, Jesus Christ, knew internal joy, the experience of internal joy, and both of them made eternal impact. They experienced the joy of real life here and then made eternal impact on everyone around them. Of course, Jesus Christ on the world. Amen? Eternal impact on us. So it's unsurprising that that's exactly what we see in this text. My friends, that's exactly what we see in this text. Check it out. Verse 14. Philippians chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't argue with, complain about the word and ways of God. Verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, Paul says, and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Could I ask you guys a couple of questions at this juncture? Do you want to experience the internal joy of living as God intended? Do you want to experience the joy of life that God, as our perfect designer, intended? Do you want to experience joy like that? Second question. Do you want to maximize your impact on those around you? Think about those questions. Do you want to experience the joy that God intends by design for you to experience? And then number two, do you want to maximize your impact on those around you? 
Assuming the answer is yes, you know what I think Paul would say? Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I think this is the ticket, my friends. For I think as you see the text develop, and this is not just here, but in light of everything that the Bible has to say, this is the pathway to living the dream and making impact. Living the dream and lighting up the world. Lighting up the darkness. And this is what I desire. I desire for you. This is what I desire for my life. That, that I would know what it is to experience life as God intended. But more than that, that God would use me, that God would use us as a body, individuals and corporately, to make great impact, an indelible impact on all those around us. Think right here. My friends, Paul is giving us the ticket to it. So living the dream. Living the dream. I have a, a good friend that every single time, I mean, without fail, every single time I see him, I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, living the dream, baby. Living the dream. That's what he says every time. I kid you not. Every single time. I think this is the pathway. Check out your text, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be, verse 15, blameless and innocent. Blameless. This word carries the idea of being pure or being right with God. Being right with God. Understand that as we walk through this, this is not Paul's way of telling us how to become children of God. He's already talked about that. We are children of God. He's talking about living out what it is to be a child of God. As we come underneath the authority of his word and his ways as we surrender our lives. When we do that, when we live that way, we will be blameless. We will be right with God, innocent. This is the idea of being undiluted, unmixed, okay? Like a robust cup of coffee that looks black. doesn't look like tea because it's been watered down, okay? Any coffee drinkers in the house? Real coffee drinkers? Okay. It's undiluted. That, that's the idea. Don't, don't, don't get sidetracked. Okay. Uh, it's undiluted. The point is that it's the real thing. It's the real McCoy. Right? Cheers. <laughs> it's the real thing. The idea is that it is what God designed it to be. What, what God designs for us to be. Right with him. Living in accord with him. But then also undiluted in that sense. Children of God without blemish. Again, God is not helping us to see how we can become children of God, but what his children look like when they are yielded to his word and yielded to his ways, as opposed to grumbling about it, rejecting his word, wanting to go my own way, rejecting the circumstances of my life in constant complaint about them. Paul says, don't do that. Rather, surrender. Come underneath the authority of his word and of his ways. And this is what happens. You will be right with him. You will be undiluted. You will experience a life as God intended. And this is certainly Paul's aim. As you note, the text as it continues, we won't dive into this too deeply today. But you can continue it this way to say that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. It is the word of life. 
This is life. Real living. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You see what Paul is saying there? Again, he's modeling this all for us. Even if, he says, even if I die, even if I have to give my life for your progress in the faith, I'm glad to do it. That's what Paul says. I'm glad to do it. Why? Whatever happens is underneath his purview. Whatever happens is underneath the authority of God's word and ways. I trust him. Therefore, whatever happens, man, I'm happy. I'm rejoicing because I'm trusting in him. I'm trusting in him. What a blessing. So, verse 18. Likewise, Paul says, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. (laughs) So interesting, right? And in this context, it's just constant joy. Repetition of joy. So it's important to not miss that this experience is the life that God intends. And I say life, not just eternity. This experience of joy is the life that God intends for us here and now. In other words, you don't have to sacrifice your joy or sacrifice happiness to follow Jesus, which is the temptation that Satan wants us to to feel, the the tension that Satan wants us to feel all the time. Like, if you really surrender to God, I mean, you get to go to heaven, but it's going to be miserable. You guys with me? Isn't that how sometimes people paint it out to be? Like, you can do this whole Christian thing and kind of miss out on all the fun and the party hats and stuff, but you do get to go to heaven. So it's kind of a trade-off. Paul's like, with everything in his being, Paul's like, that's not the trade-off. In fact, there's no trade-off, really. You get to experience life as God intended it here, right with him, undiluted. This is what I'm aiming for as your pastor, Paul is saying. I'm, I'm laboring this way, and if it means that I die for you guys to experience it, I'm cool with that. So I'm telling you to rejoice, Paul says. I'm telling you to be glad. Paul is not talking about a trade-off. But Paul, with everything in his being, is saying, this is the life. Brothers and sisters, this is the life. So trust it, even when it doesn't make sense to you, and even when it goes against against what your flesh really wants to do, like, trust it. Trust it. Trust the word. Trust the ways of God. He will never lead you astray, ever. You can always trust that he will lead you in a path of joy. Jesus himself said, I came that you might have life and life more abundant. He didn't say, I came that you might be miserable, but you get heaven anyway. He said, I came that you might have life, abundant, joy-filled life. The book that I've been reading puts it well when it says, the devil is the worst kind of salesman. The worst kind of salesman. He tells you exactly what you want to hear and shows you exactly what you think you are looking for. He tells you what you think you want to hear and shows you what you think you are looking for. 
He doesn't come to the table and announce to you that he's going to kill you. He's a salesman. That's not what he announces. He comes to the table with an offer to seduce you. But ultimately, he's not selling you truth. He's selling you. He's not selling you life. He's selling you lies. That's what he's selling you. He's selling you lies. He wants you to go in the way of broader society. He wants you to ignore the teaching of the word of God and live how you think you should live. Follow your own appetites, etc. He wants us to ignore statements like from Solomon in the Old Testament who said, I went that way for a time. And I'm just telling you, it's all empty. It's all empty. It's all vanity. It all leads to destruction, ultimately. The whole Bible is saying, follow God. It's, he's good. As our creator, as our designer, he knows how we might live. Really live. Following him, his word and his ways, without complaint, without grumbling, without arguing, this is living the dream, my friends. And I'm not overplaying that. This is living the dream. But those that experience that, these are the people that light up the dark. Those that are living the dream, these are the people that light up the dark. You can see in your text, verse 15. As we do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless, right with God, undiluted, his children without blemish, in the midst, what's the context? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. When do lights shine? My friends, when do lights shine? Lights shine when it's dark. That's when lights are useful, most useful. Lights shine in the darkness, and they effectively do two things. Well, they do a lot. You could broaden this metaphor as the scripture does elsewhere, but I think contextually it does two things here. It reveals truth and creates a contrast. All right, think about that in terms of this metaphor, that we shine like lights in the darkness in the midst of a crooked um, world. This light does two things. Okay, it reveals truth, and it creates a contrast. Revealing truth, creating a contrast. Contrast with what? Against this crooked and twisted generation. Very interesting to know that the word crooked, crooked comes from the Greek word scolios, from which we get our word scoliosis. It's the idea of being bent or crooked, right? As compared, and this is the contrast, as compared with that which is straight. Right? So light reveals the truth, reveals that the philosophies, the mindsets, the ideologies of society are in fact crooked, are in fact bent away from the straight, bent away from the truth. He goes on to say it's twisted. This is language that talks about perversion. It's an intentional uh, subversion of the truth, subversion of the way. But here's the deal. Like, the reality is that the ideologies and philosophies of society are, are really indistinguishable when the light's not on. 
right? It's just normal. It's normal life as we are conditioned inside of society. The only way, the only way that it's marked as askew, as crooked, as twisted, is when the light comes on, right? For the light has a way of revealing the truth. Have you guys ever been like stumbling around in the middle of the night in darkness trying to find your way to the bathroom? Anybody else in here? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, okay. And you know, you're feeling, right? Feeling for stuff. Or maybe you've been camping or something like that. It gets super dark outside or whatever and you can't see, trying to find your way somewhere. What happens when you find a flashlight? When you find that flashlight, it suddenly reveals the truth. It suddenly reveals your surroundings. Oh, there's the dresser that I just nailed, right? There's the handle. Like, I tapped everywhere on the door. And I didn't find the handle. <laughs> you guys have been there? There it is, right? How do I see it? I see it because now I have the flashlight, and it illumines things right here. Right? So it reveals truth, but it also creates contrast wherever that light is. Wherever that flashlight is, it creates a contrast with what is still in darkness. So I was thinking about this this week. I thought of being in a plane. Um, perhaps some of you have been in, in a plane like that, one of those big planes that goes on an overnight kind of trip, maybe overseas or somewhere far. And you're on a plane with like hundreds of people, right? And usually you're going overnight. Like we've gone, our family, to Romania a bunch of times. And it's always like 10 p.m. to 8 in the morning that you're flying. And if you've been on one of those planes, you know that at a certain point in time, they turn all the lights off. Like all the cabin lights are dim, is what they say. And it gets pretty dark in there. And it's kind of nice. You're kind of cozy in or whatever. But there's always a few people that do what? In the cabin, there's always a few people that go, boom, <laughs> am I right? And they got their spotlight, poof, on them because they've got to read or whatever, get some work done, eager beavers, working through the night or whatever. And it creates a contrast. Right? As you look out on the cabin and there's hundreds of people, you can clearly see like three or four. You can see their face. To see what they're doing. Why? Boop. That spotlight is there. That's what lights that shine in darkness do. They reveal truth and create contrast such that you can see. This is what Paul is saying. When we live this way, brothers and sisters, we shine the light of Christ. The ultimate light is not us. The light is Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he goes on to say in Matthew 5, 16... Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Glorify God. Because Jesus is saying, I'm putting my light in you, that you might reflect me to the world around you. And as you and I live underneath the authority of the word of God and the ways of God without complaint and grumbling and arguing to go our own way, but rather in joyful surrender to God's word and to God's ways, what happens is the light goes on. In the midst of a lot of darkness, it's like, boom! Suddenly you are shining where you are, in your context. Suddenly you are shining the light of Christ, revealing the truth. 
to people that otherwise may have not seen it ever before. Oh, that's, that's how to really live. That's the true way. That's the path of life. This is how we shine like lights, my friends, in the darkness. And to further illustrate this, just contemplate again the Apostle Paul. The ready illustration in this context of Paul in prison. Can you imagine just, just to think about like a daily occurrence with Paul in prison or under house arrest? Can you imagine the jailer that brings him his food every day? If he gets food every day, I don't know. I'm taking some liberty here. You don't have to humor me, but I think you get the point. Can you imagine the guy bringing a crust of bread or whatever? What did 99.9% of people do in that moment? Some version of, oh, eat it. Don't you have anything else? Right? Or, hidden aside, too depressed to eat, don't want to eat, mad, mad at the world, mad at life. Right? And just imagine Paul. Again, just humor me. Imagine Paul. Let's pretend that Paul's in that circumstance and the jailer brings him his meal, his crust of bread. I can just imagine Paul exuding joy, saying, thank you. I received this as from my father. This is my daily sustenance. And you know what? I kind of like crusts of bread. Thank you. You want to have a chat? You want to talk for a minute? Just think about this. You know what's happening there? Boop. Lights going on. Doesn't mean that the jailer automatically goes, can I have what you have? Doesn't mean that. It might irritate him. But I guarantee you one thing is happening. He's, he's getting his attention. Right? He's never seen this. People don't do this. Everybody else grumbles and complains and argues. But here's this dude who's happy about the crust of bread. Here's this dude who actually seems to care about my soul. That's remarkable. And that's how Paul can say, look, guys, this is so exciting that I'm in jail. Like this whole jail is working out, man. This is fantastic. The whole Praetorian Guard has heard about Jesus. That's how. Because he's not sitting in there sucking his thumb. He's not sitting in there just complaining about every circumstance. He's not shoving his food away. He's going, thank you. This is fantastic. This is wheat bread? <laughs> just kidding. Uh, overplayed the point. All right. Uh, but the bottom line is, you better believe that a person who's finding reason for praise, when everyone else is complaining, they're standing out. They're standing out. Like lights are going on around them. And people are, are seeing the truth. These people are making impact. The believer who's facing incredible loss and yet is buoyed by everything they've gained in Christ, that person stands out. The person who's pressing towards faith when all the circumstances of his or her life point towards doubt, lights are going on and they're in a position to make a difference, my friends. 
amongst family members, coworkers, friends. They're in a position to make a difference. So can I encourage you, this week, determine not to complain, grumble, argue, especially about the word of God and the circumstances of life. Surrender, choose joyful surrender to the word and ways of God and watch lights go on. You may not immediately see it. I'm telling you, people are watching. They're seeing the difference in your life. And not only will you experience joy, you'll make eternal impact for the glory of God. Let's live this way. Living thanksgiving. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace. You are so kind to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, living, and dying for us. We're amazed at that reality. We don't feel it probably as we should. But we desire to pause and just say thank you. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. So kind. So gracious. Thank you for taking the penalty for my sin. Thank you for rising again, victorious over that sin and over the grave. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be forgiven, to know how to really live, to experience real living without shame, without guilt, and empowered to serve. I pray that you would help your people to work with you as you pull us towards yourself and use us in society. I pray that you would help us to work with you by not grumbling and complaining and justifying our sin. Help us to trust you, God. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our lives. Help us to live out thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Heritage Bible Church, we hope that you will visit our website at heritagebiblelincoln.com.